Um, and that's, so that's verse 1 to 24, Matthew 11. Um, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the, deaf are, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, I'm more than a prophet. This is, one of, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not yet risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he, is who, yet, he is, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the, day, the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and the forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children, sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a... A what, sir? A dirge. And you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is pro proved right by her actions. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Beth Beth Bethsaida. If the miracles were performed in you, had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have been they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And, you. and as for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. The if the miracles that were performed in you have been performed in Sod Sodom, I would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for Jesus, that uh, all of the scriptures do point to him, and uh, we pray as we look at this particular passage now that you would help us to understand more clearly uh, how Jesus brings into effect your kingdom and how your kingdom is always progressing uh, as we share the gospel of Jesus with others. We pray for the children as well in the various Sunday school groups that uh, they would be growing in their the foundations of the gospel in their lives and building on that. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1950, 44% of Australians went to church at least once a month. How about that, eh? That's a good number. Um, however, since then, the statistic has just been heading south. Every decade, uh, it gets lower and lower and lower. Uh, nowadays, it's about 
16% of Australians who go to church once a month. Um, there are amongst us those who are old enough, you don't have to put up your hand, old enough to remember the 1950s and uh, may look back with some uh, wistful nostalgia to the days that uh, when you only had to open up the doors of the church to fill the church on Sundays. I'm sure it was a bit more difficult than that, but that's the impression you get. And uh, Sunday schools, um, they tell me were absolutely overflowing, not uncommon to have 300 kids at a Sunday school at a normal church. I don't know where we'd fit them in our church, but uh, that's what people tell me. Now, those of us who do not remember that era, well, we just lament that by comparison, our churches these days are so much smaller and uh, so many less people uh, go to church. Uh, indeed, as some non-Christians are very keen to point out to us, that you don't have to be a mathematical genius to know that if that kind of downward trend continues, we'll end up with nobody coming to church before too long. And so, as Christians, uh, you can get a bit disheartened by that, can't you? And we can sometimes lose a little bit of confidence and even ask the questions, well, you know, this drop in church numbers... Um, does it mean that we're, are we failing? Are we doing things the wrong way? There are certain changes that you keep on needing to make in church to make us more uh, connected to the culture and the community without making compromises. But sometimes we can just get a bit despondent about that. And even if you think about it, it's really the question is, well, is God actually failing? Um, what is actually happening? Does it mean that the kingdom of God is shrinking rather than advancing. Now, negative statistics were not always an issue for Jesus in his ministry. Indeed, the, uh, the stats were generally pretty good. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, thousands of people would uh, flock to Jesus uh, in order to uh, hear him preach, to see his miracles, just to be near Jesus... And yet, there was one faithful follower of Jesus who expressed doubts about what was going on. Um, in Matthew chapter 11, which you might want to have open in front of you, we see that John the Baptist was very concerned that God's kingdom was in fact not advancing through Jesus. Um, let's have a look at that. I'm going to read to you the first couple of verses in John ch Matthew chapter 11 where it says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So that's the geographical context of this. When John heard in prison that what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we be expecting somebody else to come? You see that? You know, what's going on here? Um, why would John question whether Jesus was in fact the Christ? Now, the context is that John was in prison, uh, having been put there by Herod. Uh, it's, that is an historical fact that John went to prison. The, uh, even the Jewish historian Josephus tells us exactly what prison that he was in. 
And by this stage, it's possible that John had been in prison for perhaps even as long as a year. And so it's understandable that in that kind of situation that uh, anyone might become uh, a bit demoralised, a bit despondent and even waver. However, there may be a different reason for John's doubt about Jesus, not just a psychological kind of thing. And that reason is his expectation. Um, what would John have expected the kingdom of God to be like? Uh, would you mind if you just flip back a couple of pages in Matthew's Gospel to chapter 3 for a moment or two? We're going to look at what John was actually preaching, uh, and that'll help us to understand what he was expecting the Christ to do. And I'm going to pick it up at uh, chapter 3, verse 11. John is preaching to the crowds that had come out to uh, be baptised by him. And he says, so he's not in prison, he's doing his ministry. And he says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry, and he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Right? Now, John, was, John preached repentance. And the reason he preached repentance was because he knew that the one who came after him would be the one who would be bringing judgment and the one who would be establishing God's kingdom. Now, in the Old Testament, what, would, what was God's kingdom like, say, under the, under the reign of King Solomon? Um, it, was, it was big, wasn't it? Uh, it, was a, it was a great physical kingdom, an actual nation uh, with Jerusalem as, as its capital. And under Solomon, uh, it extended its boundaries pretty, pre pretty big, and uh, other nations' leaders would come uh, to uh, Israel for uh, wisdom and for guidance. And so that's what, what John has in mind. Uh, for John, uh, the Christ would, would drive out the enemies of God's people, um, would, would punish sin, would bring judgment, and would establish God's rule forever. But instead, languishing in prison, John is hearing stories about sick people being healed, about demons being driven out of tormented people, about a, a dead girl um, being raised from the dead, about a, uh, winds and, and waves stopping because someone tells them to stop. And, and that's all very well. But where's the judgment that he was expecting? Where's the kingdom? Should we be expecting someone else instead? So how does Jesus respond? Well, back to chapter 11, um, pick it up in verse 4. When John's disciples have come to Jesus and they've asked him that question, should we be expecting someone else to come, you know, because you're not the one? Well, Jesus replied, well, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, 
and the good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, you've got to ask the question, well, what kind of an answer is that? Because in one sense, he's not telling John anything that John doesn't already know. The reason why he sent his disciples to Jesus is because all he's hearing about is people being healed and dead people being raised and so on. So what kind of a... It's really what Jesus... It's not just what Jesus says, it's how he says it that's important. You see, John knew the scriptures... And here, Jesus is quoting the scriptures. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 35, uh, which speaks of what uh, will happen when Messiah comes, when the Christ comes. That uh, it would be a time when the blind would see, when the deaf will hear, when the the lame will leap, uh, when the mute will shout for joy. And in Isaiah chapter 61, it would be a time when the good news would be preached to the poor. And so, how do you know that God's king has come? It's when you see those things happening. Uh, it's when, when you see the, the, the effects of the fall, uh, the brokenness of our world, being reversed as they are in Jesus. You see... Sickness and death are a result of sin. And as Jesus comes, we see the the kingdom is breaking into the kingdom of this world and those things are starting to be reversed. Mind you, um, Isaiah chapter 35 also talks about judgment. Now, I once heard a... uh, I was at a meeting where there was a very popular preacher was preaching and by popular... I mean, I was sitting in a crowd of 10,000 people. And he taught that all Christians should be able to heal people with the same power and the same effectiveness as Jesus did. And the fact that we're not doing that is why people, not as many people are becoming Christians. And so all we need to do is to believe that we can do it and we will do it. But that is to misunderstand the kingdom. It's to misunderstand the purpose of Jesus' miracles. I'm not saying that that God doesn't perform miracles today. Of course he does. Of course he does. But the miracles of Jesus identify him as the Christ and as the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies, such as Isaiah chapter 35. And in so doing, they also point us to what his death and his resurrection achieve uh, for our future. Uh, That uh, kingdom reality in Revelation chapter 21, when, uh, when we're told that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes because there will be no more mourning. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. Uh, There'll be no more crying, there will be no more pain because there will be no more sin. Sin will, be, have, will have been dealt with once and for all. And it's that Revelation chapter 21 um, reality that we get a foretaste of in the miraculous healings that Jesus did in his ministry and the driving out of demons. But we mustn't think 
that John the Baptist was somehow weak. Um, Jesus doesn't think that he was weak. Uh, can I refer you to chapter, um, to verses 7 and 8? As, jo- as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. So here he, he actually defends John. And he, and he asks them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed that's swayed by the wind? Um, if not, what did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes, they live in kings' palaces. What he's saying here is that John the Baptist was no... um, He wasn't a guy who just flips and flops. He was no weakling. He's not not a guy that just goes shaky at the knees. Uh, The reason that he was in prison was because he feared God more than he feared man. Um, In chapter 14, Matthew recounts to us how he actually got into prison, and that was because he he was the guy who took it up to the authorities. He was the guy who challenged uh, the king, King Antipas, uh, Herod Antipas, uh, about Herod's um, adulterous marriage to his um, uh, brother's wife. Uh, One of Herod's symbols was the symbol of the reed. I'm talking about, you know, the thing that grows by the side of rivers and lakes and so on. Uh, in fact, if you look at coins that were produced by um, in Herod Antipas's reign, uh, they didn't have a portrait of Herod Antipas on it because the Jews don't go for graven images. Um, instead, they, some of them had the, the, uh, the symbol of the reed to symbolise uh, King Herod Antipas. And the reason that he picked that as the symbol of his reign uh, was because of a myth uh, that uh, an angel had once planted a reed on, on, some, on, on a water, watery area and a sandbar had developed around that reed and it continued to develop and to develop and develop and eventually became the block of land that the city of Rome was built on. Uh, that's, that was the myth. And Antipas was, uh, saw himself as being this great uh, builder of cities. Uh, he built um, Tiberius by the uh, Sea of Galilee, which he named after the Roman emperor at the time. And he wanted to accrue some of the greatness of Rome, the symbol of Rome, to himself. Uh, but the symbol of a reed was actually a very good symbol for Herod but for a different reason. Uh, It was because, it was a great symbol for him, very apt because he was a man who had no moral stability. He was like a reed swaying in the wind. Whereas John the Baptist was not like that. Uh, Nor did John the Baptist wear fine clothes. The original Greek word there for fine, um, it actually means soft. Actually, it means effeminate clothes. Um, he didn't wear effeminate clothes like, like a man living in a palace. And, and again, that's another swipe at, uh, at John's captor, uh, who eventually uh, would behead John because he didn't have the, um, the backbone to stand up to his wife um, or to lose face in front of his friends at this 
dreadful party that he had. Now, Jesus defends John uh, because John's question about Jesus actually makes sense when you think about it. Uh, In verse 9, Jesus turns the question around. It's not a question about who are you, who is Jesus. It's a question about who is John. And and he says that, yes, John uh, is a prophet, but he's actually more than a prophet. A prophet speaks of God's judgment that is to come, and John does that. But John actually is the fulfilment of prophecies that have been made before him. Take a look at verse 9. Jesus continues saying, Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Um, Here, Jesus is citing the prophet Malachi, who foretold that God would send the prophet Elijah, and after Elijah the prophet comes, then would come the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Um, so So John is actually the Elijah figure, Uh, Jesus is affirming that and the one to whom John points is the one who will bring the great and dreadful day of the the Lord. Jesus is affirming all of that and so he's therefore not going soft on judgment, far from it. Um, John the Baptist is the Elijah figure and after him comes judgment. So Let's recap. John is languishing in prison and he's thinking to himself, uh, what's going on? The Christ is supposed to bring judgment and establish God's kingdom and all I'm hearing about is sick people being healed and, well, should we be expecting someone else? I've got a question for you. Put your thinking caps on. Is John the Baptist an Old Testament person or is he a New Testament person? It's a tricky question because we read about him in the New Testament. But check what John, Jesus says about John in verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not been anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, greatest person ever born. And that's a pretty good rap when it's coming from Jesus, isn't it? Right? Uh, But he's also less than the least in the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, it doesn't make sense. How can that be? How can he be the greatest person that's ever been born and yet less than the least in the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's because John is an Old Testament person. That's why the the greatest ever, and great not because of who he is, great because of the one who he prepared the way for. But as a prophet, he spoke of things which he did not fully understand. You and I understand them because we live this side of the events of the gospel. 
the death and the resurrection of Jesus has made the, uh, the, the nature of God's kingdom clear to us. Uh, it's not a physical kingdom as John had anticipated. It, it's not a nation in the Middle East. It's not a, a religious institution. It's not, a, let alone, a political institution. Uh, it does not consist of buildings and impressive real estate and so on. And, and in one sense, it's not even people who gather together in church every week. God's kingdom consists of people who follow Jesus as king. It's pretty simple, isn't it? They follow Jesus as king because they know that he died for their sin on the cross, that he's been raised from the dead, and that he now rules their lives. Friends, if you understand that, then you are actually greater than John the Baptist. Even the children in the Sunday school right now who know that Jesus died for them, even the person who on Friday night, the young person who might have heard the gospel preached for the first time ever and came to understand it, the brand new Christian, uh, the person who is least in the kingdom of, uh, of heaven, is actually greater than John. Because John did not live long enough to see uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason he didn't live long enough was because he was no reed. He was the one who actually rebuked the reed and it cost him his life. Um, In 1 Peter, uh, we're told that that the prophets longed to know. Uh, They spoke about things which they didn't understand They longed to know, they longed to see the things which have been made clear to us um, by people who've preached the gospel of Jesus to us. Make sense? But in Jesus' ministry, as people are being healed, as demons are being driven out, uh, we see the the powers of darkness uh, being pushed back as the kingdom breaks into the kingdom of God breaks into the kingdom of this world. And in verse 12, it's described in the Pew Bibles as being, uh, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. And it's advancing as people being cured of their sicknesses, as demons are being driven out. And it's the same for us today. We may not see it so tangibly, as like an earthly kingdom with physical assets and power. But as the good news of Jesus spreads, God's kingdom is always forcefully advancing because it's about about individuals. It's about ordinary people, humble people, placing their trust in Jesus and being saved, brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son um, whom God loves kingdom of light. Uh, But so too, just as the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, so too in verse 12, forceful people lay hands on the kingdom. And it's understood that that means that uh, it's about the persecution, uh, that people don't actually like the gospel. And so they oppose the gospel. They oppose even us. Uh, And the context here makes it clear. In verse 16... Jesus goes on to say, to what can I compare this generation? 
They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, we played the flute for you and we did not dance. We sung a dirge and you did not mourn. I don't know about you, I've always wondered what that means. It seems that Jesus is kind of repeating something which his, his hearers actually understood what that was about, some kind of a familiar um, thing that was happening. The commentators say that uh, it's a game that uh, children would play. Uh, while, mum, while in the marketplace and mum and dad are off doing the grocery shopping, the children singing uh, and playing their flutes... Uh, would play this game called Weddings and Funerals, uh, where you would, um, <clears throat> you would play your flute for a wedding song and people around are supposed to dance, uh, or you'd uh, sing something that sounds like a dirge. That's, uh, Meredith, that's something that you sing at a funeral. Okay, got that. And people would pretend to mourn. So it's like children playing that game, but no one else is playing along with them. Um, the reaction is zero. Silence, no reaction. Like people who don't repent. They, they dismissed John the Baptist because he was strange. That, you know, they said, well, he lives out in the desert, he lives this hermit lifestyle, he, he doesn't uh, drink wine and he doesn't eat good food. Uh, so we can write him off, we don't have to listen to his message. And then they go and they reject Jesus for the exact opposite reasons. Well, he goes to parties and banquets and he eats this good food and he drinks wine, so you know, we'll just reject him and reject his message as well. Bottom line, people just don't want to listen to the truth because their hearts are hard. It's a spiritual matter. And for that, there is judgment. In verses 20 to 24, far from being the one who's just healing people and is not going to bring about judgment, Jesus talk, now talks about the judgment that will take place. And he, we're not going to go into detail in those, these verses, but here he pronounces the judgment on cities where most of his miracles had been performed. And it's shameful. It's absolutely shameful because Jesus has gone to these cities. Uh, he is God in the flesh. He has performed miracles, he's healed people, he's driven out demons, he's given ample evidence that he is the fulfilment of Isaiah 35, and yet so many people just reject him. And for that, because of the revelation which they have received, the judgment that was placed on Sodom and Gomorrah would be more bearable than the judgment that would be placed on the city of Capernaum. Do you remember how God judged Sodom in um, Genesis chapter 9? What, what, what is it? He poured, it poured rain, didn't it? But it wasn't water, was it? Do you remember what it was that poured down on the city? Burning sulphur. Burning sulphur. So get that image. Jesus is saying that that city was punished with burning sulphur being poured down on it, and yet that'll be more bearable than hell for those who have seen the revelation of Jesus, have had the opportunity to respond to him, and have rejected it. Now, it's not clear whether John's disciples heard what Jesus said here about judgment, um, because in verse 7, 
Um, they were leaving Jesus when he began to say these things. I'm not, we're not sure if John actually got the message. But what it does tell us is that John's concern about Jesus not bringing judgment was ill-founded. Um, it's because he ha had an Old Testament view of the kingdom and really it's just a matter of timing. That's what it is. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul uh, says that God has, a, has, has set a day when he will judge the whole world by the man whom he has appointed. And he has given proof of that by raising that man from the dead. Who's that, folks? That's Jesus. Jesus has died. He has risen from the dead. He's coming back one day. And on that day is the great and dreadful day of the Lord when the judgment will take place and the kingdom of God is brought into its full expression. Now, um, what about us? Do you sometimes wonder whether God's kingdom is advancing? Um, do you sometimes get a little bit um, despondent about things? Um, listen to a... I want to share with you a description of um, the Australian attitude towards um, religion and Christian faith. And you, tell, you, you think about what you think about this, if, if this is a proper description or not. And I quote, Churches no longer matter very much to Australians. Agree or disagree? If there is a happy eternal life, an emphasis on the word if, if there is a happy eternal life, it's for everyone. We all get to enjoy it. For many Australians, the pleasures of this life are sufficiently satisfying that religion has nothing of great appeal. That's the end of my quote. Uh, what do you think of that? It's a fairly apt description of most Australians today that um, our uh, idolatry is our hedonism, that that's the pleasures that we enjoy, and you compare the pleasures that we enjoy that are available to us and what religion has to offer, and uh, we'll go with what the pleasures of this life offer us. I reckon it's a reasonably accurate description of Australians today. Um, although it was written 55 years ago, in 1964, that's a quote from The Lucky Country by Donald Horne, if you're familiar with that uh, piece of literature. And that was when 40, over 40% 40 of Australians went to church every Sunday. <laughs> so imagine what um, uh, Donald Horne would be saying um, today. Let's think about that. Some older Christians have told me that, yes, back in that time, there was, it was, uh, there was a whole lot more people going to churches than what there are today but they say that there was in that there was a lot of what they'd call not Christianity but churchianity you know what I mean by churchianity uh, we going to church was part of the culture it was part of the tradition and that there was in fact a lot of um, a lot of moralism in going to church you'd go to church in order to learn how to be a good person 
or, to, or you just send your kids to church so that they would learn how to be uh, good people. And uh, I've had some older people have said to me, you know what, I went to church all my life, you know, through that era, I remember that era pretty well, um, but actually I've only become a Christian in the last few years. <laughs> Um, because I've only started hearing about Jesus' death on the cross, paying for my sin, and him being risen from the dead uh, in more recent times. In other words, they're saying to me that lots of people are going to church, but uh, God always had good, faithful Bible-teaching churches, and he always has his people um, who are genuine Christians, but there was a heck of a lot of it that was actually not, was churchianity, rather than Christianity. And, and when they reflect on that, they actually think, actually, um, things are not as bad today as what we may think that they are because people who are regularly going to church are more, far more likely to, people who, to be people whose lives have been changed because they're living with Jesus as their king. And so that's kind of helpful for us to know Uh, so that we don't become despondent. There is a challenge, of course, that uh, we need to be people who are um, ready and willing um, to change, to change the way that we do things in order to be connecting better with our culture, with our community. And some traditions just need to fall by the wayside so that we can uh, be not having traditions as an obstacle for people hearing the gospel. And it's also true that we need to get a, you know, sort of like a kick in the pants every so often to be people who are more zealous to be making those connections and to be bold in speaking the truth um, to to people who need to hear about Jesus. So rather than being complacent, uh, there is an active element in being Christian and getting the gospel out to our community. But we don't need to be despondent and despairing because regardless of what things may look like um, on the surface, God is sovereign and God's kingdom is always advancing, is always advancing forcefully, but it's often very much, it's like it's flying under the radar because people are hearing the message of Jesus, people are being, turning their lives over to Christ, living with him as their king, as we, uh, like John the Baptist, are willing to put our necks on, on the line in order to uh, speak to people about um, God's holiness and God's judgment. But unlike John the Baptist, uh, we live this side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and we don't just speak about judgment we speak about Jesus we speak about what he's done on the cross how he's paid for sin that he has risen from the grave that there is forgiveness there is hope that is found in him Uh, one uh, Christian evangelist I know of was uh, interviewed on television one day. It was one of those shows where they're trying to say that the stats are falling, you know, the church has got no hope, no future. And uh, the 
reporter said to him, uh, do you think that there is any future for the church in Australia? And quick as a flash, he said, so long as people keep on telling others that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, there is a great future for the church in Australia. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for um, Jesus, that in his coming, he has, uh, that your kingdom has broken into the kingdom of this world, and that in his death and his resurrection, that people are being taken out of that kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Help us, Lord God, to be uh, those who, have a, uh, who are not like reeds, that we are firmly um, committed to these truths, that we have the kind of uh, uh, gumption that uh, John the Baptist had, and, Father, that we would be people who have the clarity of the revelation of your kingdom, that we would be able to share with people the gospel of Jesus boldly, confidently, uh, knowing that uh, uh, he indeed is king. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.